0: Okay,
1: so this is our second of two lectures looking at the relationship between the passions and the virtues. So, you know, those, as we're going through the catechism, those are the sequential chapters. Um, This is such an important thing to understand that I'm putting two lectures on it. Um, So what do I want to do with you today? Well, on one level, I'm going to repeat what I said with you on Tuesday. Um, then, with that, finish going through Tuesday's lecture material. And then I just want to add to that looking at some particular virtues so we might get a better understanding of kind of how that maps out in practice. Now, warning to the student if the teacher has given two whole lectures on something, it's very likely to be in the exam, yes? So, um, a pretty obvious question for this would be, map out the relationship between the passions and the virtues, and a question like that would give the possibility, you know, there's a skill to setting a good question. A good question both enables a student who's struggling academically to give an answer, but also enables a brilliant student to flesh out an answer even more. So I think giving you the question, describe the relationship between the passions and the virtues can both be answered simply, but also answered with sophistication, quoting from different parts of the Catechism. And from what you remember of Tuesday's lecture? Does that sound like a possible question to be able to answer? Okay, so let us recap what we looked at last week, Uh, on Tuesday rather. So, nearly did it again. So, we started by noting that, you know, what happens with the passions and with the virtues is that we, we see something and we react to it. So, in knowledge, you apprehend something. And you might apprehend something that is real or something that only appears real. That triggers the various appetites within you, which triggers, in turn, more specifically, passions which move you with respect to this thing you've beheld, beheld. And it might move you towards it, or it might move you away from it. So you know, if a snake moved in here, I would apprehend it and I would not be moving towards it. I would not be thinking, oh, I could cook that for lunch. Um, now, I know some of you um, might be able to cook a, a snake for lunch, I don't know, but I definitely would not be moving towards it. So, the passions don't only move us towards things, they also move us away from things. But that aspect of us where there is something that's kind of rooted in our body, uh, just a kind of thing that's moving even before I decide whether I'm gonna move. The passions, which flow out of something even more basic in us, the appetites. Okay, and we were talking about how repetition, I always struggle with spelling repetition. Um, Repetition forms the habits, or habitus, we talked about. Yeah, so you do an action again and again and again and you habituate your passions to respond in a certain way. (coughs) So if I lived in a country where there were a lot of snakes, Um, I might actually need to learn not to run from a snake, but learn how to kill it. Um, Now it would take me quite a while to habituate myself, to have the reaction appropriate to see the snake and engage with it in a way other than running. But I could, you know, you can learn to conquer your fears. Fear is a passion. But you can also learn to not be governed by fear to have the passion of daring as saint thomas describes it so that i see the thing i see it is an evil before me that it is a threat but i know how to deal with it and i have formed within myself by repetition this passion of
0: daring father i have a question when we talk about virtue like we're talking about. Virtue of this and virtue of that, but like, is there properly speaking like, just the virtues of like courage, temperance, fortitude, or like, is there virtues on, uh, under that still? Or is like any action that's properly
1: considered a virtue? Well, St. Thomas in the Summa Theologica describes a total of 53 virtues, so that's quite a long list, but he's not aiming in that 53 to cover all of them. So, some of the virtues are more pivotal. Um, So St. Thomas, when talking about sin, you know, we talk about the seven deadly sins. They're also called the seven capital or head sins and the other sins flow out of them. Um, Well, similarly with the virtues, that there are virtues that are kind of the head and there are related virtues. Thomas sometimes says allied virtues or parts of the bigger virtue. So the general virtue of temperance, by which we learn to moderate how we relate to the pleasures of touch. Well, there are two pivotal parts of that. Um, Abstinence with respect to food and chastity with respect to sex. So those are parts of temperance. And even within that, you'd have lots of subdivisions. If you remember the example I gave you of having perfect posture and standing with perfect posture. You know, a really small, particular action that has a habit, a virtue that can perfect it. So that I focus too much on my posture or I don't focus enough. Or I don't have posture befitting the dignity of a priest. Or I have a posture that just makes me look like a pompous whatever as a priest. Um, Now that kind of brings me on to another point that I only touched on at the end of the last lecture, and that's um, the virtuous mean. So, every way you can do something right, there are two ways at least that you can do it wrong. Too much, excess, and too little, deficiency. So the example of posture, you know I can be too fussed about my posture or I can be not fussed enough. And if I'm not fussed enough, well at your age that might not seem like a big deal, but the older you get, the more your back problems are gonna be because you didn't have good posture now. Um, You can be overly fussed about your posture or not fussed. Somewhere between those extremes is the right balance of how important that should be. Because there are a lot of other things to be fussing and thinking about in life. It's not the only thing. Um, But it is a thing. So, between these two, there is what's called the virtuous mean. Now, where it is between those two varies with each different activity. So some activities... The right balance is much closer to what was kind of looked like excess, whereas with other activities, it's much closer to kind of being zero. So um, So the example of the virtue of courage. Now, courage, St Thomas says, is much closer to being like being foolhardy as opposed to being a coward. So what if someone, a soldier who is foolhardy, will just run into any battle? He doesn't give much consequence to the effect. Whereas someone who's a coward is just always going to run away. Well, actually, courage is... It's between those two extremes, but it's, it's closer to being foolhardy if we're looking for the mean, the virtuous mean. Whereas with chastity, um, one extreme with chastity to the, the desire for sex is the excess of lust. Now, St. Thomas notes um, that to have a deficiency of sexual desire, he says, is so rare that there isn't really even a word for it. Um, now, here is an Italian. In English, being rather frigid people, uh, we do actually have a word. Uh, so I think we would we would refer to somebody being frigid with respect to sexual desire. Um, And that he would say that chastity is closer to that than it is to the excess. So the point is that the virtuous mean, the right balance, varies with different activities. Sometimes it's, you want a lot of that. Sometimes you don't want much. Sometimes also it will depend on your circumstance. So the virtue of being studious, well, at your phase in life, to do that right is, in a sense, much closer to excess than when you're a priest, and you still need to study if you're going to be a priest, if you're going to be bringing your people fresh ideas, but you don't study as much. So it does depend on your particular circumstance, your state in life, or whatever. Um, so there's an aspect of virtue analysis here that is always tailored... the individual and to your content. Not too much, not too little, knowing what's right for you. So chastity for the, the married man is obviously closer in that direction than chastity for the consecrated celibate, where my need to Restrain is obviously going to be much closer in this direction because the appropriate measure for me is zero. Yeah? mapping this out a bit differently i talked about how there are these three aspects of our human nature our intellect our will and our passions and that each of these will react differently when you see something that the will is conformed to the question of truth what is this thing in front of me it's a chocolate cookie my, My intellect is asking the question, what is it? Whereas my will is relating to it as, is it good for me? Is it attractive to me? Is it desirable? And my passions likewise ask the question, is it good? And I noticed that there was an interplay between these three things, that they're always kind of affecting each other. So that my will might command my intellect to remember just how much fat is in the cookie. And as I remember how much fat is in the cookie, the cookie just looks a little bit less attracted to me that the the passion moving me to the good it just appears less good because my will has directed my intellect to focus on a different aspect of the truth of the thing, so that I move differently towards it and if we do that repeatedly in our thinking we can have habits of thought broadly speaking, the intellectual virtues so that I could create a habit of thinking so that whenever I look at a cookie, I just always think, that's not good. And the movement of my passion just won't be triggered much. Whereas, if whenever I see a cookie, I'm just always thinking... Boy, did that taste good last time. And, you know, by habit, I just am always thinking I want the cookie. Yeah.
0: Oh, Uh, yeah. So with the pleasure and joy, we said that pleasure was with the uh, the bodily stuff and joy was with the spiritual. Can I do this with will and passions? Can I say that the will is kind of more of a spiritual uh, question of if it's good, and the passions are more of a bodily question if it's
1: good. I don't think the distinction would be quite that straightforward. Um, so, the passions, in their broader sense, would also engage with things spiritually. So, the delight that comes, even at the level of my passions in the contemplation of God. Yeah, so when we get those moments in prayer, those moments in the liturgy, where there's something in us and we just get that delight in God that isn't just theoretical, but somehow moves us. That is in the passions. So, I, So what I'm saying is that it's not just... Joy here, joy here, and pleasure there. Mm. Any other questions? It's all sounding familiar from Tuesday, at least reasonably familiar. So let's look at the lecture notes and just check we've gone through all that. Yes, back to my brewery example. Yes, so you remember I had the brewery, What's the mechanics of what I'm doing? I'm doing the brewery. But how I engage with it on the interior makes it a different action and will form a different habitus within me. So, am I just persevering? I'm persevering and persevering and persevering. And if I do that, I will form perseverance within me. And then, when I come into a completely different situation, this habitus of perseverance will help me there. So, I get to, I'm stuck in line at the DMV but my habitus of perseverance that I've built in myself by reciting the breviary in a persevering manner will actually suddenly be spontaneously present in a completely different scenario but a scenario where actually perseverance would apply quite well so a virtue is a combination of the interior and the exterior But because it's embedded in us interiorly, there's a whole number of different ways that it can be applied in the exterior. And some virtues are more broad in their application than others. So, for example, one of the reasons that the virtue of patience is so important in the spiritual life is that pretty much in every sphere of life there's an opportunity to apply patience. Whereas the virtue of temperance really only applies to food. So it's a big thing, but it only has that kind of one, a much more restricted application. But what is a virtue? It's this thing that is not just about an external habit, but also how I've engaged with it from the inside. And as I said, if I engage with it in a completely mistaken manner, I actually can form a vice in me, not a virtue at all. So that I say my bravery in a proud manner. I'm there in the chapel I'm doing it better than those other people I'm doing my bravery with the British translation (laughs) yeah um you know so it becomes pride and I just carry that vice of pride into all kinds of other things they don't even know how to spell colour properly (laughs) um So repetition forms the appetites and the passions into things, habituses. Um, The plural of habitus, by the way, is habitus. I had to look that up to be sure. Um, So by repetition, I form many different habituses within me. Um, okay, I think that's the basic point to make so, ah uh, yes judging, so if I have a good virtue within me that gives me an ability to spontaneously come to a judgement about truth so um St. Thomas, quoting Aristotle, they say there are two ways that you, as a rational being, can make a judgment about whether something is good or not. One is, intellectually, by the gift of reason, where you come to something and you think it through. So I look at the cookie, and I measure how much sugar went in there, how much fat went in there, How much, you know, I intellectually think through everything that's in the cookie, and I measure that one cookie every three days is going to be appropriate to the diet I'm aiming to live at my age with my physical lifestyle. I do all that rationally. Now to do that takes a long time, yeah, to make that degree of analysis. There's another way in which we judge things, and this is how we judge things actually all the time, and this is on the basis of the habitus within. Me, that basically we each have a measure of food that we think that's what lunch looks like. It's about that many veg, that many this, that many that's what a normal lunch looks like for me. I've, by repetition, kind of that's what looks right to me. I make a judgement that is kind of spontaneous, formed by habit. And if that's a good habit, that is how I recognise the good. And that's actually a much better way to recognise the good in that it's quick. So these two different ways that I come to a judgment. and the, One of the reasons that virtue is so important is that it gives us this ability to make a quick, accurate judgment. Is this good or is this evil? Rather than having to think it through from first principles every time I approach something new. So Aristotle says, it is the virtuous man who is the measure of his actions. How do you measure your actions? Is this a, a good thing before me? What's the right measure here? Well, if I already have virtue within me, then I just spontaneously measure accurately. The virtuous man is the measure of his own actions. But that's because I have previously in my proper thinking measured it all out thinking as a rational being. Okay, the last bit of recapping what we did last time. Joy and ease. So the Catechism says, the man of virtue has joy and ease in his doing of good. So that because I've habituated myself to do the right thing, it's just natural within me, or St. Uh, Pincares puts it quasi-natural, that it's not natural in the sense of fixed but it's become half natural to me. So the guy who works out in the gym every day, each time he goes there afresh, it's just natural to do his routine. Whereas the very first time he went there, boy, was it hard work. And it's the same with virtue, that just by repetition, doing the same thing becomes easier becomes joyful, that doing the good brings joy with it. Now we talked about pleasure before, that God has attached pleasures as the completion of activity and the completion of the life of virtue, broadly speaking, is that joy we have in God. Okay, so the passions get triggered by seeing things, and by repetition they end up as a habitus. If it's a good habitus, that's what we call a virtue. If it's a bad habitus, that's what we call a vice. So if I have that habitus that every time the alarm clock goes off, I say, shut up Alexa, Um, (laughs) then, you know, that's not a good habitus. Whereas, if every time it goes off, I leap out of bed, do 50 press ups, and make a morning offering, um, then I've got a good habitus. Um, so. Okay, page six of Tuesday's Notes, something I've not spoken about yet. So halfway down the page is a little subsection called Vice and Incontinence, and this is from Aristotle, but it's a way he breaks things down. He talks of eight different types of people. And in thinking about these eight different types, you actually see, described what he's aiming for. Um, I would suggest to you that actually this would be a pretty good way of answering an essay question on um, the relationship between the passions and virtue, because that's what he's describing here. Okay, so let me go through, page six, halfway down, the eight different types of people that um, Aristotle describes. So first he says there are some people that are just beast-like. They have neither reason nor will. Um, They don't really think about what they're doing, they're just grabbing for what's pleasing to them, in the same way an animal does, beast-like people he says. Then there are god-like people who have perfect reason and perfect will and seem to have been born thus. Yes, it looks like everything is easy for them. And, you know, there are, somewhat annoyingly, people like that out there, yes. Um, Now, more significantly from our context, continent people. So what's... Some people are in control of themselves and some people aren't in control. Well, the, in control, the continent... You, you know the word continent? If you, if you, don't have, if you have a continence problem with your um, bowels, that's, you don't have control, yes? Continence is about whether you've got control or not. So the continent refused to follow the pleasurable appetites and follow reason instead. I know the cookie will taste good, but I renounce the cookie. I have control. Whereas the incontinent, they have good reason, they know the right thing, but they follow their pleasures instead. I know I shouldn't have the third cookie, but I do. I follow my pleasure, not my thinking. I'm out of control. There's something I want to do, but I don't do it. I'm not in control. My passions are in control. In contrast, there's a different thing, which isn't about pleasure, it's about pain. So some of the passions don't relate to pleasure, they relate to pain. As I said, like the snake isn't a matter of pleasure, it's a matter of an evil and fear. Well, similarly with pain. So it says there are some people that are soft. They have good reason, but they're weak, and they don't resist pains. So the alarm clock goes off, They know they should get out of bed, um, but it's just too painful to get out of bed. It's that they're soft. Their reason is operating properly, but they don't do it. Whereas there are other people who are enduring, who resist pains and follow reason instead. Now the point is, none of these so far are virtue so these are people who have either super strong will or an utter lack of it. But none of them have people where the passions and the will are habituated together, pulling you in the same direction. So, the final two examples there. The virtuous follow good reason and have trained their passions to pursue good and resist evil. So every morning, I've got up when the alarm goes off. I have, by repetition, trained myself so that not just does my intellect judge that this is the right thing to do, but even at a bodily level, my passions are ready to respond. I have an integration of my passions and my will and my intellect just pulling me all in the same direction. That's virtue. And can you see that's different from just self-control? So basically, we, in, on the path to virtue, we kind of start with self-control when our passions are pulling us the other way. But we can gradually form our passions by repetition until we get virtue. Now, the eighth category, the vicious those with vices. They follow a corrupted reason. Now, note they still reason. They're not brutes like the first category. But they have their passions in harmony with their corrupted reason. So I have measured for myself four cookies after every meal. Every meal. I have decided this is how I'm going to live my life. You know, I know I'm going to have a heart attack at 55, but I've just decided I'm going to have four cookies after every meal. I've made the rational decision and I have habituated it myself by repetition so that I don't really think about it anymore. I just see four cookies and it just looks right to me. looks normal. So I've trained my passion so that my passions and my intellect and my will are all moving to four cookies. But it's, a, it's not a true reason, it's not what St. Thomas calls right reason, because that's not a real good. Four cookies every meal is not a real good, or rather it's a real good out of measure. So that isn't being animal-like, the brutes, it's thinking, but it's a bad thinking, a false, inauthentic reason. Any questions here? Do, Do you see how these eight categories are different?
0: Father, well, this might give more theological. you say that, like the way of sin is death. Yes. Um, Nicole, A., I guess, kind of connecting the dots here. Like, quite literally, like when you pursue something that's against your nature, you're quite literally slowly dying. Like if you're doing like the whole thing with the cookies thing, you will you will die from the sugars and, and the stuff. Like that does with anything with any vice, though. Seems to me.
1: Yeah, and so, so the question is, you know, from Scripture, the wages of sin is death. Now, part of our Catholic understanding, because we believe in this thing called nature and human nature, is that it isn't just a random God who has commanded, I punish you for your sin. But actually, the first place of that punishment is in ourselves, our very nature. That what is sin is acting contrary to what we've been made to be. So that when I sin, I... Damage myself. So, kind of whatever punishment God puts externally is almost irrelevant. It's really what's within myself, the damage that is sin. That ultimately is, like it, it, you said, it, the, the gluttony, a physical death too early, um, or the spiritual death of sin in terms of damaging my relationship with the Lord.
0: Or also, might- you know, like lust. You know, if you're practicing that, could be having sex, HIVs. I mean, whatever the case may be, that could, that could be another thing. Any you know, sequences like that. Um, and so it would seem like, if we say that like hell is the self exclusion, like, right, then we would say this would be the self choice towards like the good. And so, like, yeah. This is locking your will to the good and intellect, the passions, while like hell would be the contrary of and it. Distorts that towards a different, different end.
1: Yeah. So interestingly, Aristotle, because he doesn't have a belief in a personal God, he just has the prime mover thing, he doesn't have the same sense of evil and vice as being an offence against God for punishment. So for him, the entire problem with vice is just that it is a corruption of nature. Um, And in that vision, although he doesn't have hell, so to speak, but hell is what we do to ourselves, ultimately for all eternity. Okay, I now want to throw in a completely different thing and talk about acquired and natural virtues. Now, I've, I've quoted the catechism in the footnotes here, but not in the main body. So this is page seven. Um, so before looking at the page, let me start by making a couple distinctions. So we all know people who don't believe in God, but are yet kind of basically good people. So there are people who don't believe in God but actually moderate their food, live a good diet, give to the poor. That you can have, even without God and the supernatural, a natural level of virtue, a natural knowledge of nature, reason. So you can perfect various activities in what would be called the natural virtues. And you grow in those, as I've said before, by repetition, but by human effort. So Aristotle, just thinking of history, Aristotle, he didn't know the supernatural virtues because he didn't know Jesus. But he did know an awful lot of virtues. He described them. He had what we would call natural virtues. And these are acquired through human effort by repetition. Supernatural virtues are done for God. So the same activity is done for a different goal. And that when I do it for, a, for him, it actually doesn't just change the motive, but it actually changes the whole activity. So let's compare dieting to fasting. So dieting, I am just concerned about the health of my body, whereas fasting, on one level I'm doing the same thing, I'm restricting what I eat and when I eat it, but it has a different motive, it's about union with him. And a kind of supernatural dieting would be wanting to be healthy in the body because this is what God wants. God doesn't want me to be that priest who dies at 52 from a coronary heart attack. There aren't enough priests in my diocese. He wants another 25 years of service out of me, at least. Um, So in order for me to give him that, I need to keep my body in a reasonably fit state so that I'm dieting for him. That would be a supernatural virtue of diet. So the virtues can have a a natural level that the atheist can know, but that same activity when done for God gets transformed into what are called the supernatural virtues. And those are different, not just why I'm doing it, the motive, but because it's part of my relationship with him, it has grace that is the real source of the growth in it. And so these are called also infused virtues, that where do they come from? God infuses it down into my soul. And every time I repeat a good action of that virtue, my repetition is removing the obstacles to him pouring in. And that's why, again, repetition causes it to grow. So Aristotle's natural virtues, they grow in repetition just by human effort, self-will. Whereas the supernatural virtues grow by repetition but by grace. Because every time I do a good deed, I'm removing an obstacle to his grace coming in. Okay, let's look at the page 7 there, and I'm just going to read through that section.
0: Um,
1: And the words I have in square brackets, that's because these same virtues have different names. So acquired virtues are also called natural whereas infused virtues are what are called supernatural. So natural virtues or human virtues or moral virtues, the natural virtues can be acquired by human effort. And that's why they're called acquired. Repeating the same interior act. Whereas supernatural virtues, supernatural virtues are directly infused by God into the soul and we cooperate with that process by repetition of the related actions. But the virtues are nonetheless infused. So I then say, natural and supernatural virtue have the same matter, but the end and the mean changes. So the end is the goal I'm aiming at, whereas the means, uh, the mean rather, in, you know what's the right measure between the extremes. So first example, temperance in food, also called moderation. A, as a natural virtue, temperance governs dieting in accord with reason. Dieting calls for food to be restricted to the amount the body needs. The needs of the body dictate neither too much nor too little food. I reason without faith this. The natural virtue is directed to the good of bodily health. Yes, so everything I've just described there, you don't need to know the Bible to know that. You don't need to know the Lord Jesus to know that. You don't need to know there's a God to know that. You can just know by being a rational being that you should moderate your use of food you should diet but B is a supernatural virtue the same thing temperance governs fasting in accord with faith but now it's actually supernatural temperance not natural temperance so fasting calls for actually less food than the body needs at least on that day you're fasting fasting subordinates the needs of the body to a higher end namely union with God so that the supernatural virtue is directed to the good of union with God so for example in supernatural in fasting I might eat a lot of bread so that the measure of what I'm eating um, quantity wise might be exactly the same as the person dieting but I'm having just bread because it doesn't taste that nice after having many mouthfuls so it's a thing I'm doing renouncing the pleasure of the food while still nourishing the body enough But the, the, because the body isn't my measure of concern it's Primarily the soul, the spiritual. that's the, the end of my activity in fasting, but also the measure of my activity in fasting. Okay, second example, prudence. So I then quote the catechism, what is prudence? Prudence is the virtue that disposes practical reason. So practical reason is that bit of your thinking that is about practical stuff. so you have thinking that's about mathematics thinking that's about prime analogates in philosophy Um, but there's other thinking that is about activity, doing stuff well that's what relates to prudence and there's a right way of thinking about what to do and there's a wrong way of thinking of what to do if you have the habitus of right thinking that is prudence (coughs) I don't know in Spanish, but in the English language, we have a problem with the word prudence in that it usually means being careful. He's a very prudent person, meaning he's careful. Whereas in the philosophical tradition, prudence doesn't just mean careful, it just means right action. And sometimes, th- the, rather, the thinking of right reason. Um, sometimes, right reason isn't about being cautious. It's about being pushy. You all with me with that use of the word reason? Yeah. Okay, so, back to my notes here, A and B. So, A, this is a natural virtue. Aristotle knew it without knowing Christ. Aristotle practiced it. Natural prudence. For example, how far to jog to go running, in order to be fit but not waste time on excess exercise, right? The prudence is the virtue that habitually answers that question. So the man out there who doesn't believe in God, but he does go running, he does do his exercise, what's the right amount of exercise to not be putting more time into that than his job requires, his family requires? There's a natural level answer to that question. That's the natural virtue of prudence. Would relate to that. B, prudence can also be a supernatural virtue. As a supernatural thing, its end is in God and life in union with him. For example, how does drugging aid me in acquiring my end in God? So as a priest, you know, how much... Time should I put in exercise as a priest what forms of exercise should I engage in so that that can fit into my serving the people in the parish you know that it it all has a different end and therefore a different measure and because it's oriented to him It has a different source, namely grace. It's infused in me by God. But it only grows by repetition. Thoughts. speaking, yes, that's what we mean by a natural virtue. There would be, in the tradition, lots of debate about whether actually there can be such a thing as a natural virtue. Um, so, as I've described it, we can think about it in terms of reason and what Aristotle knew. But if according to the teaching of the church grace works even outside the visible church in people who cooperate with light as much as they see it then actually even what they think they're doing by self-effort grace is working in them as well so on one level it's a bit of a fudge to make a clear distinction between natural and supernatural but on another level the reason it's helpful to have that distinction is that it shows us, in a sense, just what we're looking at in a supernatural virtue. But the end, the measure, is all about how this relates to God. Now, could
0: you, I mean, you can make the, the relationship between maybe like dining and fast, right? Let's say somebody's fasting, and also like that. It's good, they you know it's good for them. Isn't there like a, like a relationship there? Like the fasting. And they know it's good for them. It's a form of dieting to some extent.
1: With two different intentions, I guess, would that have to be the So dieting and fasting are the same in that they both are about regulating food, but they're different in terms of what their goal is. Fasting is about the needs of the soul. Dieting is about the needs of the body. Now I think you can diet for a supernatural motive that God wants me to not die at 52 of a heart attack Um, therefore I diet but to do the form of dieting and self-control in my eating that is oriented to my soul directly would be fasting and that would have as its structure denying myself pleasure whereas you can diet not denying yourself pleasure, just measuring it according to the needs of the body. Does that answer? No, yeah. Okay. Right. What more? So I'm what's called a virtue ethicist. I could talk about this all week, all time. Um, but that pretty much is going to be the end of where we're going to focus. I'm going to, our last 10 minutes, the, the chart I gave you here, can you all see that chart? So it maps out virtues, opposing vices, and remedies. Um, So, this trajectory I've put here of movement, you apprehend, you get the appetite, you get the passions, ultimately within you, that's what moves you to God. So you are built to yearn for God. You are built so that when your appetites see how good he is, you move towards him. So the most foundational in terms of what it's all about but also the ultimate the queen of the virtues is charity and when you have charity you get with you as a natural consequence as we've kind of talked before joy that this is the flip side not the flip side it's the opposite of flip side It's, it's the um, the automatic following. When I have love, I have joy. Yes, you know the, the teenager who's just had a girl a- agree to go out on a date, you don't need to tell him to be happy. Yes, he just is happy. Um, love automatically brings joy. But it's you know, there's a loss of, a lack of love in the world and in us. Now, one of the reasons we lack love is sloth. um, Or achadia, is how it's also called in the tradition. Uh, Kind of a bit more generally laziness with respect to God. Now, this doesn't bring a joy, it's a sadness. So, Instead of looking at God and feeling in love, joy, I look at God and I just think, boy, that's a lot of hard work. You know, being a saint, boy, that's a lot of hard work. That brings sadness. And as much as when I look at God and I feel this sadness, I have this sloth that then overflows into a whole bunch of activities. So this is one of the mirror images of when this trajectory that should end in joy in God instead ends in sadness and sloth. So we should rejoice in the good, but it's possible instead to feel sorrow and sadness in the good. Now there's another way that we can Um, how relate to the good in sadness and that's envy. So when my neighbour has something good I should be happy for him. That's a, a wonderful computer you've got. I'm happy for you. But it's also possible for me to look at someone's computer and feel sad. I want that computer. I don't have that computer. So I can look at my neighbor's good and whereas in love of him I would be happy for him, have joy in seeing the good he has. Instead, I have the sadness of envy. So again, how am I relating to the good? Not with the joy that comes from love, but with the sadness of engaging with good at the level of envy. And both of these are not physical pleasures. These are of the spirit. What about pleasures? Well, if you don't have the... Joy that comes in God, then there is a hole in your yearning that wants to be filled with something else. And it's going to therefore grab, St. Thomas puts it, wandering, a spiritual wandering after illicit pleasures to fill that hole. I don't have the joy I should have in the good of God, so I want pleasures illicit pleasures to fill that instead so in lust and in gluttony I try and fill that hole with pleasures that are illicit but it's the same basic trajectory but because it's failed to be satisfied in him I'm going to look for it in some lower substitute But there are also, as we've talked about, good pleasures. Um, So St Thomas will talk about the virtue of play or games um, that you need in you. um, You need to relax. Um, and there is a good way of engaging in pleasures that is a virtue, that is actually in relationship with um, charity. So the last thing we're going to do this morning then is just to briefly look at that. On um... So page eight of today's new bundle There's a new bundle I gave you today. So basically, the bundle I've given you today won't be in the exam, but if you, in your exam question, talking about virtue, wants an example of a virtue to describe the notes in these pages you could use to give you an example to describe yeah? But you won't be asked, describe the virtue of vainglory, because we've not covered that in the lectures. Okay, so, top of page eight, section on modesty, I'm not going to go through that, I'm going to go through the little section called play, or game. So St. Thomas says this is part of the virtue of modesty because modesty in his structure concerns outward behaviour of the body. And it's the the virtue of play because it restrains immoderate outward behaviour. So say the soul has limited powers. It needs to rest. And the soul, how does it rest? In pleasure. So my body rests in sleep. My soul also needs to rest. And the thing that kind of causes a rest in my soul is pleasure. So, you know, when I have the cookie, it does actually, there's a a level of, ah, a rest in the soul with pleasure. Well, the virtue of games of play is about this. So St. Thomas says, words and deeds delight the soul. And this is called play, and it's necessary to use it. Now, Fulton Sheen says, play is activity that is purposeless, not meaningless. Um, now, these are old notes, I'm afraid I've got cricket as an example in there. Um, but in baseball, um, baseball has a structure to it. Yes, it has a meaning. It has rules. But it doesn't have a purpose. You're not going out there and playing baseball to make money. You're just doing it for no reason other than the pleasure. Now, if you're one of those rare people who is actually played, paid to play baseball, then it ceases to be a matter of games. It's not about your recreation But for those of us who aren't paid, then it's an activity that has a purpose, or rather has a meaning, but it doesn't have a a purpose. And because there's no ultimate purpose other than enjoying it at the time, therefore it is in this category of games. But thinking about how things can be too little or too much, well, St Thomas says, play needs to be directed by reason. So he says, It must not be indecent or injurious, and must not lose balance. It must be appropriate to the person and to the time. And it must not become an end in itself, that we're made for greater occupations than pleasure. So there can be excess in play beyond what's reasonable, due to species, that you might be rude or obscene or uncharitable to others in how you play. So children in the playground, they can often be all these things, rude and obscene and uncharitable to others while they're playing. So the species of how we play needs to be charitable. But also the circumstances. An undue time or an undue place or an undue person. So I just put too much time into playing. Or... As a priest, there's a, a way of playing, recreating that might be appropriate for what I'm seen doing as opposed to somebody else. That there's things that are, have a context that makes them appropriate. Okay, the last thing here, St. Thomas says, a lack of mirth. I think I referred to this in one of my sermons. A lack of mirth, he says, is a sin. So mirth mm-hmm. is that sense of humour that willingness to laugh at something. He says, this lack of mirth makes a person burdensome to others. Such a person lacks playful speech, offers no pleasures to others. So St. Thomas says, life is burdensome enough already. We don't need people who refuse to laugh. Um, And yet, if we're honest, we all know that sensation when there's someone we just don't like very much. And we kind of refuse to laugh at their jokes. Um, Whereas someone we do like, even when their joke isn't very funny, we're happy to to laugh along. Um, So there's a sin in failing to have that attitude in love of being willing to laugh. So proper measure, we are creatures that should have that as an attitude. Okay, so that's it for today. Um, let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen.
1: Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. be?
0: Somebody figure this out. Never shall be, or and will be forever.